0: chapter 1. Isaiah chapter 1. I want to as we're starting for the first time, series through the book of Isaiah. I wanted to give you just a touch of background, and we're going to build on that because there's so much background to the book of Isaiah, it could be an entire sermon. So we're going to build week by week, but just a few things to note first is, who is Isaiah? Well, he's a man who lived in Jerusalem, and from what we think is, what we can tell is he comes from a very wealthy family and seems to have access to the various kings of Judah of that day. He's a prophet. And so in, very, in verse 1, it declares that this book is a vision, which means a revelation from God to Judah, which is the southern kingdom of Israel, and to Jerusalem, its capital city. Now, in the time, in the day, it was a very uncertain and chaotic and very wicked time in which he's riding. The righteous king Uzziah of Judah dies around 745 B.C. before Christ, leaving his son Hezekiah in a real pinch because Judas was almost a vassal state of Assyria paying huge tribute to them. Hezekiah, now the new king, decides to stop paying them. Well, Assyria comes, they surround the city, they attack it under a guy named King Sennacherib. Hezekiah dies in 698, leaving his wicked son, Manasseh, as king. Manasseh then surrenders and takes hold of all the idols and pagan worship on the day of the day, even offering his own son as a sacrifice to the gods. These were the days of Isaiah. He was the prophet calling God's people to repentance, to trust the Lord. But Israel was blind, full of corruption and desolate. And in the midst of Israel's rebellion, Isaiah presents a figure that becomes clearer and clearer as the book goes on. One who's given these royal titles like Prince of Peace. The one who is coming from the family of David. The one who will be the Messiah, which literally means the anointed one. The anointed one. All kings were messiahs, which means they were anointed. But this would be the anointed one. He was coming. And then we also see another expectation of a servant later in the book. A servant who would come and serve his people and bring justice to the world. And this servant would carry the burdens and the sins of his people and God would crush him for them. And what we realize as we read is that they are one and the same man. An anointed king is coming who will suffer and die for the sins of mankind. In the midst of tragedy, God has a plan. He's got a purpose. There's a hero coming. Isaiah 1, where we're going to start today, is the introduction of the entire book, and it's an overview of the situation as God sees it. So let's just read Isaiah 1, verses 1 to 20. Hear, O heavens, and give ear, O earth, for the Lord has spoken. Children, have I reared and brought up? But they've rebelled against me. The ox knows its honor, the donkey its master's crib. But Israel does not know my people, do not understand. Ah, sinful nation, a people laden with iniquity, offspring of evildoers, children who deal corruptly. They have forsaken the Lord. They have despised the Holy One of Israel. They are utterly estranged. Why will you still be struck down? Why will you continue to rebel? The whole head is sick and the whole heart faint. From the sole of the foot even to the head, there is no soundness in it, but bruises and sores and raw wounds. They are not pressed out or bound up or softened with oil. Your country lies desolate. Your cities are burned with fire. In your very presence, foreigners devour your land. It's desolate and overthrown by foreigners. And the daughter of Zion is left like a booth in a vineyard, like a lodge in a cucumber field, like a besieged city. If the Lord of hosts had not left us a few survivors, we should have been like Sodom and been like Gomorrah. Hear the word of the Lord, you rulers of Sodom. Give ear to the teaching of our God, you people of Gomorrah. What to me is the multitude of your sacrifice, says the Lord I have had enough of your burnt offerings and the fat of well-fed beasts. I do not delight in the blood of bulls or the lambs or of goats. When you come to appear before me, who has required of you this trampling of my courts? Bring no more vain offerings. Incense is an abomination to me. New moon and Sabbath and the calling of convocations, I cannot endure iniquity and the solemn assembly. Your new moons and your anointed feasts my soul hates. They have become a burden to me. I am weary of bearing them. When you spread out your hands, I will hide my eyes from you. Even though you may make many prayers, I will not listen. Your hands are full of blood. Wash yourselves. Make yourselves clean. Remove the evil of your deeds from before my eyes. Cease to do evil. Learn to do good. Seek justice. Correct oppression. Bring justice to the fatherless. Plead the widow's cause. Come now. Let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall become like wool. If you are willing and obedient, you shall eat the good of the land. But if you refuse and rebel you shall be eaten by the sword. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. Let's pray. Oh God, we want to learn more about you. Why? Why were these people, your people, why was their sacrifice not pleasing to you? Lord, what is it that they were doing that you hated? And yet at the same time, how is it that a father could see his own children acting in such a way and say, let's reason together. I will make your sins white. God, we don't want to be hypocrites, Father. Lord, we want to learn from your people. God, and at the same time, we want to be thankful for the hope we have in the Messiah and the Savior who came to be a sacrifice for us. Teach us now, Lord, about who you are and about the type of worship that you long to have, and about the gospel which makes us white and clean before you. Lord, let your spirit take your word and work in our lives, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Several years ago, I was in my driveway, and my neighbor came out, and we began to talk, and he was raised in a Catholic background, but not a Christian, didn't proclaim to be a Christian, didn't go to church anymore. And we started talking about immigration. And at that time, where we were, there were lots of people coming from different faiths, different religions around the world. And he just kind of chimed in and said, you know, it, it doesn't really matter what religion they come from, because all ways lead to God, don't they? All things in religion make God happy with us, don't they? Think about it, Rusty. All teach us what's right. All teach us about an afterlife. All teach us to seek personal happiness in whichever religion we choose. Now, that's about like saying that all men are the same because they have hair, a head a nose, and a mouth. You see, externally, religions can be similar, but internally, they're radically different. Religion, Christianity, radically different. Religion is for the sake of man. Religion worships and sacrifices to a God that solely exists to help me to give me security, to deliver me in times of need. It's a way of making God perform for me, to deliver me in the most difficult of situations. And when we have prosperous and wealthy times and religion is abandoned because there's nothing then that I need from God, the Christian gospel is diametrically opposed to this we don't deny that God blesses us and God looks after us and God cares for his people's daily needs right? but for the Christian these are fruits which are produced through my relationship with God but not the reason I follow and love Christ it is not God who exists for the sake of people but people who exist for the sake of God. Isaiah 1, this is what we see. God says twice, Here, listen to me, my people. I am burdened because of your religious practices. I hate, I hate your religious sacrifices and offerings. When have I ever asked you to make such sacrifices to me? You can pray all you want with your hands in the air and I'm not going to listen. Nothing you are doing, God says, is ridding yourself of your guilt before me. Your hands are still red with guilt, though they are praising and raised high in the air. Yet, if you will just repent, not try to cover over your guilt by doing things like sacrifices, if you will return to me like a father... Willing to obey me, with your then your hands which are red with sin, I will wash white as snow. This is God's message to His people into man-centered, humanistic religion. Abraham Kuyper, the great theologian who was actually the prime minister of the Netherlands years ago, he says this: the starting point for every motive in Christianity is God and not man. Isn't that great? The starting point for everything that we do as Christians is God. It's God-centered, not man. At the heart of our faith is not a belief in the self-sufficiency, but in the sufficiency of God to meet all my needs through Christ. We don't do things to try to manipulate God into action or to make him do what I want. But because we know God's goodness is seen through the life and the death of Christ for us, we trust Him as a Father in every aspect. And our faith in Christ crucified is the only sacrifice that we hold up before the Lord and say, now I know that I'm white, not because of what I've done, though I am guilty of so many things, but because of your sacrifice for me. So there's several things we want to see in this text. First, Israel's burden. Second, God's burden. And third, how does God lift that burden? Okay? so we dive in? Verse 1, 2, and 3. Point 1, Israel's burden. Let's talk about Israel's burden. Look at verses 2 and 3 with me. It's Hear, O heavens, and give ear, O earth, for the Lord has spoken. Children have I reared and brought up, but they have rebelled against me. The ox knows its owner, the donkey its master's crib, but Israel does not know, my people do not understand. Now he is building on Moses and on Moses' covenant of the law. And so to understand where he's going here and what he's saying, we need to start with Deuteronomy 4. So I want to read you just, just a few lines From Deuteronomy 24, 26, and 27, very similar language. There's a reason that he says what he says here in verse 2 and 3. And they would have heard Deuteronomy. Let me read it to you. When you father children and children's children and have grown old in the land, if you act corruptly by making a carved image in the form of anything, And by doing what is evil in the sight of the Lord, your God, so as to provoke him to anger, I call heaven and earth to witness against you today that you will soon utterly perish in the land that you are going over to Jordan to possess. He's intentionally beginning these words of prophecy by coming back to Moses and to the covenant that they've made. And he's saying, I'm coming to you as a prophet, in the same authority as Moses had. Hear me as I speak for God and all of his creation. You are my children, says the Father. I brought you up from slavery, from nothing. I reared you, he says. I have given you my will to live by. I've made a covenant with you. I've bound myself to be your God and you my people. And if you obey it, There will be incredible blessings for you. But if you disobey, there will be discipline. You will be destroyed by the nations. So what did they do? Well, look in your scripture. But they rebelled against me. Verse 3. The ox knows its owner, and the donkey its master's crib. But Israel does not know. My people do not understand. God reared a nation, and now that nation is rebelling. And he says they broke a legal relationship. They cast aside their father in heaven. And notice how he says that. They rebelled against me. And he's saying your sin is personal. You didn't just break a bunch of rules. You rebelled against your father. You've left my household. So he compares them to an ox and donkey, which Proverbs 7 says are the dullest of animals. But even though they are the dullest of animals, they know their home. They know their master. They know the voice of the one who feeds them and cares for them and nourishes them, who raises them. And he says, Israel does not know or understand. God's people don't know who raised them, who keeps them, who sustains them. They've lost the knowledge of who God is, in many ways, they've become like wild animals in the field. Now, verse 4, he says the same thing. Notice those words there. Offspring of evildoers. So this has continued on for generation to generation. It's happened again and again and again. There's a heritage of wickedness here. He uses the words forsaken, despised, and estrange yourself. Simply put, they've left their father behind. And they're no longer living according to the will of God their Father. Now, He said sin was heavy upon them like a burden. Now He begins to define that burden. Look in your Bibles at verse 5 and 8. It's effect on their lives and it's effect upon their land. Verses 5 and 8. Notice what He starts with there. Your head and your heart are sick. There's no soundness bruises, sores, which are not pressed up or bound up. He's saying this is the effects of sin it's had on you. You're like someone now that's been beaten severely and you're beaten so severely that you're no longer caring for your sores. Back then, it's kind of nasty when someone would have a big gash or a sore. They'd put oil on it, but they'd get their finger and they'd press out all the nastiness. Now, I hope I didn't just cost you your lunch. But that's what they would do. And he's saying, you're so bruised, you're so beat up, you're not even doing that anymore. This is the effects of sin upon your life. It's destroying you. But not just you, the land. Look there what he says about the land in verse 8. Now this brings us back to Deuteronomy 4, what we just read. Just what God had promised. If you leave me, your sin's going to affect you and your land. Foreigners have come in. They've devoured the land. They've eaten and taken everything. It's desolate so that the daughter of Zion, which is Jerusalem, is left alone like a booth in a vineyard, like a lodge in a cucumber field, uh, like a besieged city. You say, what in the world does that mean? Well, back then when they would plant a vineyard or a big cucumber field, people would just come steal everything. And so you know what they did? They built a tower or a booth, a big giant one in the back. And the only time people would stay there or was inhabited was during the harvest. They would come, they'd watch, they'd live there. But during the rest of the year, it sat vacant. It was alone. It was abandoned. And what he's saying is, this is you. You are like that tower which is abandoned, which is alone, which has isolated yourself from God. In July 1881, President Garfield set out for his college reunion And something terrible happened to him along the way. There was an angry lawyer who shot him. And he had about a three-inch gash there in his side. And so doctors for 80 days came and tried to take the bullet out. Now, I'm really going to make you lose your lunch here. And what they ended up doing was making the problem worse and worse and worse. They stuck probes in. They stuck unwashed fingers in. And one guy even stuck his whole hand in. penetrating his liver, puncturing it. Sixteen different doctors turned a three-inch hole into a 20-inch infection. He died September 14th, not of the bullet, but of the infection. Sin is the most absurd thing because it's self-destructive. It is a burden of our own making. Because of it, we lose dominion or control over ourselves and our lives so that we can't even control our own lives. It decomposes the heart and brings disorder, distorting our view of God and of worship. And that's what we see there, and that's what we see us now. Now their sin was not only destroying their lives and land, but it was distorting their view of God and it was a burden to God himself. Look at verses 11 and 12. Look at verses 11 and 12 with me. What to me is the multitude of your sacrifice? Question one, says the Lord. I have had enough of burnt offerings of rams and the fat of well-fed beasts. I don't delight in the blood of bulls or the lambs or goats. When you come to appear before me, who is required of you this trampling of my courts? God hates religious pretending. That's what's a burden to him. He calls them Sodom and Gomorrah, which literally means that they are a people now that are separate from him. He takes no delight. And so he asked them two questions, verse 11 and 12. Question one, what to me is the multitude of your sacrifices? What does it mean to me? Why do I want you to make sacrifices? Question two, verse 12, when you come before me, who has required this trampling of my courts? He's saying, you've become Sodom and Gomorrah spiritually, away from me, And I have never required an offering from the nations. An offering means nothing to me from people who don't know me. Verse 14, my soul hates and I am burdened by your Sabbaths, how you worship, by your monthly feast, getting together to worship, and your worship services. I will not listen to your prayer no matter how long you pray and how high you lift your hands when you pray. And you say, wait a second, Rusty, why? Stop. I thought God required his people to make sacrifices in the Old Testament. Right? I thought God told them to keep the Sabbath, that he loved their prayers. Why is he saying when has he asked it of them? Well, he asked it of them in Deuteronomy, which you just read. Well, religion to them had become about ritual, not about loving and trusting their God. When relationship with God is lost in our faith, what is left is sacrifice. Without faith, worship is not pleasing to God. It is like trampling the courts of his temple with dirty feet, he says. And God has never, ever required a sacrifice from people who don't know him. Please catch that. He has never, ever required a sacrifice from people who don't know him, who are not saved by faith. Why? Because a sacrifice achieves nothing. It is in God's promises that makes us clean and righteous before Him. Without faith in God's promises, we can make all the sacrifices we want. We can hold our hands in the air all we want, yet our hands are still red with guilt because religion, based upon what I do, has no ability to cleanse me before God. No matter how fervent I am, and how long I do it. Now, what's God's solution? Verse 16, 17. Look there in your Bibles with me. Notice what He tells them. Wash yourselves. Make yourselves clean. Remove the evil of your deeds from before my eyes. Cease to do evil. Learn to do good. Seek justice. Correct oppression. Bring justice to the fatherless. Plead the widow's case. The same hands that are held in the air, in prayer, full of guilt, which means covered with, he says, before him with the blood of guilt. He tells them, wash, clean, remove your evil deeds. And what he means is, repent and turn to me. But the repentance is not just with their mouths, is it? Not just with their hands in the air. It's with their actions. He says, do good, seek justice, correct oppression, the fatherless and the widow, turn away from evil to do my will. Love the things I love, he says. God is a God that loves the widow and loves the orphan and loves the fatherless. We see that all the way back to Deuteronomy 10. And he's saying, don't just let your faith and your religion be verbal on stage for everybody to see. True repentance is lived out. Go to the courts and plead the case for the orphan and widow who have no husband. They have no one to take up their cause. They are the outcast. Let your repentance be and your faith be, not just with word, but with action. Lived out. He's calling them away from hypocrisy of worshiping God with just hands, just sacrifices, while those hands are still full of guilt. He wants a repentance that changes their very lives. In 1936 the largest ship to ever cross the ocean was launched the Queen Mary For 4 decades she served back and forth in wars across the Atlantic and the Pacific oceans finally it was time for her to retire and they took her to California and they were going to transform the Queen Mary into a hotel and so It had three giant smokestacks, and they took them down. And slowly, as they lowered them down onto the deck of the ship and took them off, they crumbled, completely crumbled. And as the engineers got in there, do you know what they found? That 40 years of being in the ocean had completely rusted away the one-inch steel that it was made of. And what was left were 30 coats of paint. And that was it. There was nothing to the inside. Just the outside was left. Religious hypocrisy carries the face of Christianity and of godliness, but it lacks a heart that loves the Lord and wants to do His will. There is no root. What God hates here is when faith is lived on a stage, but never practiced when we are alone. A religious formalism that only goes through the motions of worship whose hearts are far from loving, trusting, and obeying Him. This kind of faith does not please God, and it certainly does not satisfy man. Now, sometimes our culture in the South and in the Bible Belt can be very similar, can it? People think God merely wants a religious sacrifice from me. He just wants me to go to church sometimes. And depending on the type of church you go to, He just wants me to raise my hands. Take the Lord's Supper, give an offering, and believe this religious sacrifice is all God wants. And God says, I hate it. It's a burden to me. It's like bringing dirt into my temple. Two reasons. Why? Why does God hate that then and now? First, it is a denial of the seriousness of my sin. A religion like that says my pollution is not so bad that I can't fix it by just doing a few sacrificial things. If I just go to church, put a little money in the offering pray, hold my hands up, then that should clean and make everything right between God and me. My sin is really not that bad. And secondly, secondly it says God's holiness is not so great. He's not so holy that I can't reach him, appease him with my efforts. He's not really that above me. Doesn't really require so much of me. And God says, this is religion that I hate because it's a false view of God and it's a false view of man. Come to me, if this is who you are, with repentance and a willingness to do my will with faith. Now, let's move to the third thing. Israel is burdened. God is burdened by how that they're trying to deal with their sin just through religion and sacrifices. Thirdly, the burden is lifted. Hallelujah, verses 18 to 20. Let's read that, and we'll finish here. Come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they are red as crimson, they shall become like wool. If you are willing and obedient, you shall eat the good of the land. But if you refuse and rebel, you shall be eaten by the sword. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. Scarlet, red, to white. Here's the grace of God. Though you have rebelled against your father in heavy, though you have a heavy burden of sin upon you, though you've forsaken God for such a long time, you've despised and been so disobedient to your father, Though your land is desolate because of your idolatry, and you yourself beaten down by the effects of it, though your hands are guilty, God says, I still love you as a father. Return to me with repentance. And if you are willing to obey the covenant that we've made, I will restore you from all the effects of your own actions and sin. Your land will flourish Your hearts will be white and clean before me. But if you refuse my covenant grace, then you will be given over to the effects of your own sin and destroyed by the nation. My friends, the Gospel, and of course Isaiah, the sacrifice that they were looking for was pointing towards the sacrifice that God would make once for all. Once for all, and later Isaiah would tell us about the suffering servant who would come to take this burden of sin so that no longer does man have to pretend. No longer does man have to look to sacrifices. No longer do we have to hold our hands in air in prayer and say, are they guilty? We can come now by faith in what God's done for us in His sacrifice, knowing that it's sufficient that my hands are now, my heart is now white and clean. In other words, the gospel is for religious hypocrites. That's who he's talking to here. He's saying, let's reason together, you religious hypocrites, you whose hands are bloody. And he means they have probably murdered people. They've done the worst things. Come to me and I will make you clean. So if you're worshiping here today and your faith is in Christ Jesus, Regardless of if you've had a great week or a bad week, you need to know that your hands and your heart are white because of the sacrifice of Christ for you. That is sufficient. That is all you need to approach Him, boldly approach the throne of grace and worship. If you're here today and you're worshiping, and religion and hypocrisy is what describes your faith, It's all about what you can do and sacrifice and offer to God to cleanse yourself. I just want to tell you what God says here. He hates that. And it's actually a burden to Him. And I want to hold out the gospel. God sent a sacrifice. He sent His own Son to you so that you don't have to pretend anymore. And simply by faith and repentance are we saved. The death and sacrifice of Christ is sufficient for those who've got the most guilt upon their hands and their heart. Heavenly Father, we just praise You now and we worship You. I pray for the believer, those here who love the Savior, whose faith is directed toward the Messiah, Lord, that we wouldn't feel like we have to pretend when we come to worship. We would have no faith and no trust in how much we give or doing church things or reading our Bible. All those things are a fruit that come out of a heart that's been born again. Lord, our hope, our faith, our trust would be squarely upon your sacrifice for us. And may we know and want to worship you with the greatest of thanksgiving that we came to you red with guilt and you've made us white as snow. Lord, and for those here who are still like actors on a stage, Father, always seeking to do enough to cleanse their heart, Lord, I pray that they would get tired of that. Religious pretending would not satisfy them any longer, and they would look to you and look to the Savior, Jesus Christ, with a heart of repentance and sorrow and faith, and that they would turn from that to doing your will, and we would see a radical transformation by the power of your Holy Spirit. And lastly, I pray we as a church would be a people that loves the orphan, the widow, not just with our money, not just with our words, but with our hands and our lives. Show us how to do that. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.